Wealth Attraction Research. WAR, War, Primary Employment. Wealth Attraction Research. <clears throat> WAR, War, Primary Employment. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research. WAR, War, Primary Employment. Presented by Akeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting. Presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, 1776. I'm going to be starting book two, which is of the nature, accumulation, and employment of stock. And also the little book of economics, trade is beneficial for all, comparative advantage. And then finally, finishing up with how money works with primary and secondary markets. So, of course, as usual, starting with Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith. So, this shouldn't take too long. This is a short one, thankfully. I'll be able to get through all three of them, as usual, or as usually as planned. So, book two of Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, of the nature, accumulation, and employment of stock. Introduction. In that rude state of society, in which there is no division of labor, in which exchanges are seldom made, and in which every man provides everything for himself, it is not necessary that any stock should be accumulated or stored up beforehand in order to carry on the business of society. Every man endeavors to supply by his own industry his own occasional wants as they occur. When he is hungry, he goes to the forest to hunt. When his coat is worn out, he clothes himself with the skin of the first large animal he kills, and when his hut begins to go to ruin, he repairs it as well as he can with the trees and the turf that are nearest it. But when the division of labor has once been thoroughly introduced, the produce of a man's own labor can supply but a very small part of his occasional wants. The far greater part of them are supplied by the produce of other men's labor, which he purchases with the produce or, what is the same thing, with the price of the produce of his own. But this purchase cannot be made till such a time as the produce of his own labor has not only been completed, but sold. A stock of goods of different kinds, therefore, must be stored up somewhere sufficient to maintain him, and to supply him with the materials and tools of his work till such time, at least, as both these events can be brought about. A weaver cannot apply himself entirely to his peculiar business unless there is beforehand stored up somewhere, either in his own possession or in that of some other person, 
a stock sufficient to maintain him and to supply him with the materials and tools of his work, till he has not only completed but sold his web. This accumulation must evidently be previous to his applying his industry for so long a time to such peculiar business. This accumulation must evidently be previous to his applying his industry for so long a time to such a peculiar business. As the accumulation of stock must, in the nature of things, be previous to the division of labor, so labor can be more and more subdivided in proportion only as stock is previously more and more accumulated. The quantity of materials which the same number of people can work up increases in a great proportion as labor comes to, comes to be more and more subdivided, and as the operations of each workman are gradually reduced to a greater degree of simplicity, a variety of new machines come to be invented for facilitating and abridging those operations. As the division of labor advances, therefore, in order to give constant employment to an equal number of workmen, an equal stock of provisions and a greater stock of materials and tools than what then what would have been necessary in a ruder state of things must be accumulated beforehand. As the division of labor advances, therefore, in order to give constant employment to an equal number of workmen, an equal stock of provisions and a greater stock of materials and tools than what would have been necessary in a ruder state of things must be accumulated beforehand. But the number of workmen in every branch of business generally increases with the division of labor in that branch, or rather, it is the increase of their number which enables them to class and subdivide themselves in this manner. As the accumulation of stock is previously necessary for carrying on this great improvement in the productive, in the productive powers of labor, so that accumulation naturally leads to this improvement. As the accumulation of stock is previously necessary for carrying on this great improvement in the productive powers of labor, so that accumulation naturally leads to this improvement. The person who employs his stock in maintaining labor necessarily wishes to employ it in such a manner as to produce as great a quantity of work as possible. He endeavors, therefore, both to make among his workmen the most proper distribution of employment and to furnish them with the best machines which he can either invent or afford to purpose or afford to purchase. His abilities in both these respects are generally in proportion to the extent of his stock or to the number of people who it can employ. The quantity of industry, therefore, not only increases in every country with the increase of stock which employs it, but in consequence of that increase, the same quantity of industry produces a much greater quantity of work. Such are, in general, the effects of the increase of stock upon industry and its productive powers. In the following book, I have endeavored to explain the nature of stock, the effects of its accumulation into capitals of different kinds, and the effects of the different employments of those capitals. This book is divided into five chapters. In the first chapter, 
I have endeavored to show what are the different parts or branches into which the stock, either of an individual or of a great society, naturally divides itself. In the second, I have endeavored to explain the nature and operation of money considered as a particular branch of the general stock of the society. The stock which is accumulated into capital may either be employed by the person to whom it belongs, or it may be lent to some other person. In the third and fourth chapters, I have endeavored to examine the manner in which it operates in both these situations. The fifth and last chapter treats of the different effects which the different employments of capital immediately produce upon the quantity, both of national industry and of the annual produce of land and labor. That was the introduction to book two of the nature accumulation and employment of stock. I'll be moving on right away to chapter one, which is of the division of stock. This is Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, 1776. And welcome to the Room on Wisdom, Soldier of God, Shirley Julie, TFOTK, Tiffany uh, Broad, and uh, Marcianne. Hello. If you're uh, stopping in for a spell, Roman Wyden, or if you're passing through. Chapter 1 of the Division of Stock. When the stock which a man possesses is no more than sufficient to maintain him for a few days or a few weeks, he seldom thinks of deriving any revenue from it. He consumes it as sparingly as he can, and endeavors by his labor to acquire something which may supply its place before it be consumed altogether. His revenue is, in this case, derived from his labor only. This is the state of the greater part of the laboring poor in all countries. But when he possesses stock sufficient to maintain him for months or years, he naturally endeavors to derive a revenue from the greater part of it, reserving only so much for his immediate consumption as may maintain him until his revenue begins to come in. His whole stock, therefore, is distinguished into two parts. That part which he expects is to afford to him his revenue is called his capital. His whole stock, therefore, is distinguished into two parts. That part which he expects is to afford him his, this revenue is called his capital. The other is that which supplies his immediate consumption, and which consists either first in that portion of his whole stock which was originally reserved for this purpose, or secondly, in his revenue from whatever source derived as it gradually comes in, or thirdly, in such things as have been purchased by either of these in former years and which are not yet entirely consumed, such as a stock of clothes, household furniture, and the like. In one or other or all of these three articles consists the stock which men commonly reserve for their own immediate consumption. good tea. There are two different ways. There are two different ways in which a capital may be employed so as to yield a revenue or profit to its employer. 
first. It may be employed in raising, manufacturing, or purchasing goods and selling them again with a profit. The capital employed in this manner yields no revenue or profit to its employer, while it either remains in his possession or continues in the same shape. The goods of the merchant yield him no revenue or profit till he sells them for money, and the money yields him as little till it is again exchanged for goods. His capital is continually, is continually going from him in one shape and returning to him in another, and it is only by means of such circulation or successive exchanges that it can yield him any profit. Such capitals, therefore, may very properly be called circulating capitals. I would suggest uh, something fantastical, that this circulating capitals also is uh, being described very much like alchemy. I mean, you're talking about capital. He says that the capital employed in this manner yields no revenue or profit to its employer while it either remains in his possession or continues in the same shape. Right? But then it says the goods of the merchant yield him no revenue or profit till he sells them for money, and the money yields him as little till it is again exchanged for goods. His capital is continually going from him in one shape and returning to him in another, and it is only by means of such circulation or successive exchanges that it can yield him any profit. Such capitals, therefore, may very properly be called circulating capitals, right? I, I, I love this. I'm playing with the words here in the description, but I'm constantly looking for the alchemical process in metaphor, as well as how that may even lead to um, a, an actual metamorphosis of physical things. I mean, one, of course, you can look at smelting of metals and making alloys as one form of alchemy, right? Especially if you take a mineral ore, melt it down, and it becomes iron, right? But but this is really good here. I like this description. It, he says, his capital is continually going from him in one shape and returning to him in another. And it is only by means of such circulation or successive exchanges that it can yield him any profit. Such capitals, therefore, may very properly be called circulating capitals. So I'm going to take that right there as a little bit of uh, alchemy. So going from going from from him in one shape and returning to him in another. So this is exactly what happens, and this is the interesting thing about the about money and some of the notes that were earlier. Like, what is real wealth, right? And it's actually the produce of the land and the labor of mankind and nothing else. People have this mistaken idea that um, gold and silver coins, for example, are real wealth or God's money, but it's not because it's simply an agreement that people make. They're supposed to be basically just uh, receipts for goods or services, things that are actually substantial, something behind it, which is... Some people mistakenly say that um, that when the dollar was taken off the gold standard at the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement in 90, 1971 with Richard Nixon, that 
um, they were taking away from real money, but, but gold and silver is still a step removed from actual real wealth. And that's the thing. So you could say, yeah, technically that gold and silver are real money, like nominal things, right? But not actual real wealth. Wealth is the produce of the land and the labor of mankind, right? So labor, skills and dexterity that people have to provide services in using the produce of the land to then create commodities and other stock and other things like that. So that's what actually wealth is. It's the produce of the land and the labor of mankind. And in using the labor of mankind, you yourself being mankind or womankind, I'm just keeping it simple, right? Uh, humankind, we can say, right? The labor, the skills, the dexterity, the things that you can do with other things to turn them into something else or in service of or in contribution to. I rather prefer the word contribution, but in contribution to an exchange with other people in some way, shape, or form. And that's wealth. This is what... What, what's really difficult and why people keep themselves blocked from, from the attraction of money is that they mistake material objects like gold, silver, and paper, dollars, and yuan, and all that other stuff as money and wealth when it's actually you. It's the things that you can do with your time and yourself in your mind, your spirit, that is actual wealth, not those things. Because remember, once again, it's the produce of the land and the labor of humankind and remember that the real quality uh, or you know of a, of a substance of something is basically they're just receipts and uh, expressions representations money and coins and things like that of something that should be behind it it should actually represent something right represent Right, so a, a silver coin, for example, let's just say um, at the the spot price, I'm, I'm it's somewhere between twenty five and thirty dollars right now for silver. And what what can twenty five or thirty dollars, let's just say twenty dollars, twenty five dollars, right? What can that buy you? What can that do for you? Or how many people do you know get paid twenty five dollars an hour, right? So what are they producing with that? That silver coin, so it should actually represent something. If we just fixed the price of the silver coin at that throughout all time, then we can find what what can that buy. It's supposed to represent that, but but it itself has no real value other than it looks shiny. It's pretty. Of course, nowadays it can be used in technology and things like that. So, but beyond that, right? Beyond the the the, the rude, raw value of it. What is it? It should just be a representation. The real wealth, again, is the actual land. I mean, yes, now uh, silver and gold come from the land, but it's, but it's what the labor of humankind can do with that silver to make it into something useful, right? So will it power something in electronics, right? Or will it make a tool, right? Are there silver tools that are good for use? Right? Maybe it can make the frame of a pair of glasses or something like that, right? But something actually useful. I'm not just talking about ornamentation, right? Because that's that's aesthetics or beauty, which is not is not useful. You can argue all you want about that, but it's not useful. And and okay, of course that's my opinion. Because people put on makeup and 
and fashion themselves in all kinds of clothes to look more the part than they really are, you know, and all this kind of stuff that gets to the point of what people are nowadays are calling catfishing and all that stuff like that, right? But it's not technically useful unless it's turned into something that can actually provide some kind of companionship and uh, like true connection with people or to actually create some technology that gets something done. Maybe it turns back into something that helps to produce from the land, making, uh, does it help with things that actually matter, like um, clean air or fresh air, clean water and healthy food, the actual real valuable wealth and produce of the land? If not, I would con continue to question uh, values and where values are being placed, right? Because, you know, what, what really essentially has happened with... Um, gold and silver coins, they were one, they're a notion of money. And then paper monies, right, were simply substituting one notion of money for another. And what that does is it, it's, a, it's done in a way in order to usurp the power of the state, which was the original issue of money, usurping the power of the state to create and issue money, right, which when the state does it, they do it debt-free. And they do it debt-free without all the interest and stuff like that, whereas private bank-issued money is money laden with debt. More debt than it can ever be repaid, so it's a constant cycle of debt. But I went off on a tangent about that, and I want to get back into the Wealth of Nations and uh, continue that there. Oh, and let's see. Uh, hello, welcome, uh, Diane Galanti, Bernadine Fox, Truly Julie, hello, Dara with the Dashes, Roman Wyden, Soldier of God, TFOTK, Tiffany Broad, Marcianne for sitting a spell or passing through. I'm going to continue with uh, this part, uh, book two, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, on the nature, accumulation, and employment of stock. As I went off on alchemy, when I do that, I start going off on conspiracy theory stuff, mm -hmm. which is a lot of fun and helps me retain things, but... Um, I want to get back to the main point. So the thing that got me on that was in, when he writes, his capital is continually going from him in one shape and returning to him in another. And it is only by means of such circulation or successive exchanges that it can yield him any profit. Right. But that point is continually going from him in one shape and returning to him in another. And it is only by means of such circulation or successive exchanges that it can yield him any profit. Such capitals therefore, may very properly be called circulating capitals. Secondly, it may be employed in the improvement of land, in the purchase of useful machines and instruments of trade, or in such like things as yield a revenue of for profit without changing masters or circulating any further. Such capitals, therefore, may very properly be called fixed capitals. Oh, good. So we're getting these different capitals here. So circulating capitals go away in one shape and return another. The ones that are employed in the improvement of land, in the purchase of use of machines and instruments of trade, or in such like things as yield a revenue or profit without changing masters. So things that go and stay on that land or circulating any further, such capitals, therefore, may very properly be called fixed capitals. Different occupations require very different proportions between the fixed and circulating capitals employed in them. The capital of a merchant, for example, is altogether a circulating capital. He has occasion for no machines or instruments of trade 
unless his shop or warehouse be considered as such. Huh. So he most so the merchant, the capital of a merchant is altogether circulating circulating capital. Things are going out and coming back to him in different shapes. So he has one shape, it goes out, comes back in another. Usually the shapes would be like it goes out as one thing, comes back as money. So it goes out as one shape, comes back as another. All right, so all right, and so um, and he has no he has occasion for no machines or instruments of trade unless his shop or warehouse be considered as such as a machine or instrument of trade. Okay, so that and that in that case that would be fixed capital. Continuing, some part of the capital of every master artificer or manufacturer must be fixed in the instruments of his trade. This part, however is very small in some and very great in others. A master tailor requires no other instruments of trade but a parcel of needles. Those of the master shoemaker are a little, though but very little, more expensive. Those of the weaver rise a good deal above those of the shoemaker. The far greater part of the capital of all such master artificers, however, is circulated, either in the wages of their workmen or in the price of their materials and repaid with a profit by the price of the work. Okay, so this circulates so that a far greater part of their capital is circulated either in the wages, so that what they pay their workmen, the price of materials, so that they buy stuff to to uh, make the stuff with, and repaid to them right by the profit, with a profit by the price of the work, the work that the workmen do upon the materials and then they sell that. Working my way through this in the brain. In other works, a much greater fixed capital is required. In a great iron work, for example, the furnace for melting the ore, the forge, the, the slit mill are instruments of trade which cannot be erected without a very great expense. In coal works and mines of every kind, the machinery necessary both for drawing out the water and for other purposes, is frequently still more expensive. That part of the capital of the farmer, which is employed in the instruments of agriculture, is a fixed. That which is employed in the wages and maintenance of his laboring servants is a circulating capital. All right. So that, that part of the capital of the farmer, which is employed in the instruments of agriculture, is a fixed capital. That which is employed in the wages and maintenance of his laboring servants is a circulating capital. He makes a profit of the one by keeping it in his own possession, and if the other, by parting with it. Man, the detail is so amazing in just laying out how capitalism works. I mean, it's just the I mean, does anybody really normally think this this stuff out? And it's not like something that has to be thought out all the time, right? Like a mantra, you can create a very long one and then have, you know, something short that you say after to, to bring the whole idea back to mind and to, into your being, right? But so this is what this is like when I, as I'm reading this. I'm looking at all the details, and I know that by taking a few notes and recalling certain things that this is becoming a part of my my understanding, of of all of this 
So, I, I mean, I like this because you don't normally think about that. At least I, I haven't. That part of the capital which the farm, of the farm which is employed in the instruments of agriculture is a fixed capital. That which is employed in the wages and maintenance of his laboring servants is a circulating capital. Right? Because the fixed capital is the one that, uh, that are the improvement of the land. You know, they're useful material to trade. They yield a revenue or profit without changing masters, right? So the, the owner of the stuff is the master of the, the machine, right? But it doesn't change hands, and therefore it's fixed. So that's what they mean by fixed. It doesn't change hands. It doesn't change locations. But the ones that go away, right, in exchange for goods or that goes out in one shape and comes back another, like in trade or even trading, selling things for money, those would be circulating capital. So continuing, he makes a profit of the one by keeping it in his own possession, fixed capital, and of the other by parting with it, circulating capital. The price or value of his laboring cattle is a fixed capital in the same manner as that of the instruments of husbandry. Their maintenance is a circulating capital in the same manner as that of the laboring servants. The farmer makes his profit by keeping the laboring capital and by parting with their maintenance both the price of the maintenance of the cattle which are brought in which are bought in and fattened not for labor but for sale are a circulating capital hmm. both the price and the maintenance of the cattle which are bought in and fattened not for labor but for sale are a circulating capital hmm. The farmer makes his profit by parting with them. A flock of sheep or a herd of cattle that, in a breeding country, is bought in, neither for labor nor for sale, but in order to make a profit by their wool, by their milk, and by their increase, is a fixed capital. The profit is made by keeping them. Their maintenance is a circulating capital. The profit is made by parting with it. And it comes back with both its own profit and the profit upon the whole price of the cattle in the price of the wool, the milk, and the increase. Right, so the maintenance, that's like feeding them, all that stuff like that, okay. Because it comes in one shape and leaves another. <laughs> right, the whole value of the seed, too, is properly a fixed capital. Though it goes backwards and forwards between the ground and the granary, it never changes masters, and therefore does not properly circulate. Huh. The whole value of the seed, too, is properly a fixed capital. Though it goes backwards and forward between the ground and the granary, it never changes masters, and therefore does not properly circulate. The farmer makes his profit not by its sale, but by its increase. The general stock of any country or society is the same with that of all its inhabitants or members, and therefore naturally divides itself into the same three portions, each of which has a distinct function or office. The first is that portion which is reserved for immediate consumption, and of which the characteristic is that it affords no revenue or profit. Immediate consumption, right? So 
uh, by clothing, food, shelter that they consume themselves. Okay, and that of course the first is a portion which is reserved for immediate consumption, and of which the characteristic is that it affords no revenue or profit. It consists in the stock of food. Ah, I just said that is so funny. I should look ahead before I make all those comments, but it's good. It consists in the stock of food, clothes, household furniture, etc., which have been purchased by their proper consumers but which are not yet entirely consumed. The whole stock of mere dwelling houses, too, subsisting at any one time in the country, make a part of this first portion. The stock that is laid out in the house, if it is to be the dwelling house of the proprietor, ceases from that moment to serve in the function of capital or to afford any revenue to its owner. A dwelling house, as such, contributes nothing to the revenue of its inhabitant. And though it is, no doubt, extremely useful to him, it has, it is as his clothes and household furniture are useful to him, which, however, make a part of his expense and not of his revenue. And look at that nowadays, right? Even uh, Airbnb has, has made sure to change that, right? If it is to be let to a tenant for rent, well, as the house itself can produce nothing, the tenant must always pay the rent out of some other revenue which he derives either from labor or stock or land. Though a house, therefore, may yield a revenue to its proprietor and thereby serve in the function of a capital to him, it cannot yield any to the public, nor serve in the function of a capital to it, and the revenue of the whole body of the people can never be in the smallest manner or in the smallest degree uh, increased by it. Once again, though a house therefore may yield a revenue to its proprietor and thereby serve in the function of a capital to him, it cannot yield any to the public nor serve in the function of a capital to it. And the revenue of the whole body of the people can never be in the smallest degree increased by it. Although I would I would reckon that's not entirely accurate, too, because someone can rent it, not just to dwell in it, but also to do work out of it. So, again, clothes and household furniture in the same manner sometimes yield a revenue and thereby serve the function in the function of a capital to particular persons. In countries where masquerades are common, it is a trade to let out masquerade dresses for a night. Upholsterers frequently let furniture by the month or by the year. Undertakers let the furniture of funerals by the day and by the week. Many people let furnished houses and get a rent, not only for the use of the house, but for that of the furniture. The revenue, however, which is derived from such things, must always be ultimately drawn from some other source of revenue. Of all parts of the stock, either of an individual, or of a society, reserved for immediate consumption, what is laid out in houses is most slowly consumed. Of all parts of the stock, either of an individual or of a society, reserved for immediate consumption, what is laid out in houses is most slowly consumed. A stock of clothes may last several years. A stock of furniture, half a century, or a century. Holy crap, how are they making things back then, right? You guys ever remember any of that stuff? some furniture. Did you hear what you just said? 
or did he just wrote what I just read that that the uh, that the stock of furniture right a stock of clothes may last several years a stock of furniture half a century or a century but a stock of houses well built and properly taken care of may last many centuries man what kind of houses I mean we know we do know of certain dwellings in other places right that have been uncovered that have been that have lasted for centuries so hey things were built a different way all right so uh, but a stock of houses well built and properly taken care of may last many centuries though the period of their total consumption however is more distant they are still as really a stock reserved for immediate consumption as either clothes or household furniture that was only the first here we go the second of the three portions into which the general stock of the society divides itself is the fixed capital of which the characteristic is that it affords a revenue or profit without circulating or changing masters it consists chiefly of the four following articles first of all useful machines and instruments of trade which facilitate and abridge labor secondly of all those profitable buildings which are the means of procuring a revenue not only to their proprietor who lets them for a rent but to the person who possesses them and pays that rent for them oh so he did address that which i said earlier wasn't entirely accurate but he does it here so secondly of all those profitable buildings which are the means of procuring a revenue not only to their proprietor who lets them for a rent but to the person who possesses them and pays that rent for them such as shops warehouses workhouses farmhouses with all their necessary buildings stables granaries etc these are very different from mere dwelling houses they are a sort of instruments of trade and may be considered in the same light thirdly of the improvements of land of what has been profitably laid out in clearing draining enclosing manuring and reducing it into the condition most proper for tillage and culture an improved farm may very justly be regarded in the same light as those useful machines which facilitate and abridge labor, and by means of which an equal circulating capital can afford a much greater revenue to its employer. An improved farm is equally advantageous and more durable than any of those machines, frequently requiring no other repairs than the most profitable application of the farmer's capital employed in cultivating it. Fourthly, of the acquired and useful abilities of all the inhabitants or members of the society. The acquisition of such talents by the maintenance of the acquirer during his education, study, or apprenticeship always costs a real expense, which is a capital fixed and realized, as it were, in his person. Wow. That's a, that's the, that just goes along with what the, the labor of humankind, right? Fourthly, of the acquired and useful abilities of all the inhabitants or members of the society the useful abilities right the acquisition of such talents by the maintenance of the acquirer during his education study or apprenticeship always costs a real price or real expense which is a capital fixed and realized as it were in his person those talents as they make a part of his fortune so 
do they likewise of that of the society to which he belongs. The improved dexterity of a workman may be considered in the same light as a machine or instrument of trade which facilitates and abridges labor, and which, though it costs a certain expense, repays that expense with a profit. The third and last of the three portions in which, to which the general stock of the society naturally divides itself is the circulating capital, of which the characteristic is that it affords a revenue only by circulating or changing masters. It is composed, likewise, of four parts. First, of the money by means of which all the other three are circulated and distributed to their proper consumers. Secondly, of the stock of provisions which are in the possession of the butcher, the grazier, the farmer, the corn merchant, the brewer, etc., and from the sale of which they expect to derive a profit. Thirdly, of the materials, whether altogether rude or more or less manufactured of clothes, furniture, and building, which are not yet made up into any of those three shapes, but which remain in the hands of the growers, the manufacturers, the mercers, and drapers, the timber merchants, the carpenters and joiners, the brickmakers, etc., Fourthly, and lastly, of the work which is made up and completed, but which is still in the hands of the merchant or manufacturer, and not yet disposed of or distributed to the proper consumers, such as the finished work which we frequently find ready-made in the shops of the smith, the cabinet-maker, the goldsmith, the jeweler, the china merchant, etc. The circulating capital consists in this manner of the provisions, materials, and finished work of all kinds that are in the hands of their respective dealers and of the money that is necessary for circulating and distributing them to those who are finally to use or to consume them. Of these four parts, three provisions, of these four parts, three provisions, materials, and finished work are either annually or in a longer or shorter period, regularly withdrawn from it and placed either in the fixed capital or in the stock reserved for immediate consumption. Every fixed capital is both originally derived from and requires to be continually supported by a circulating capital. Hmm. Every fixed capital is both originally derived from and requires to be continually supported by a circulating capital. Hmm. All right, makes sense. Just got to think about that for a moment. Let's see. All useful machines and instruments of trade are originally derived from a circulating capital, which furnishes the materials of which they are made, and the maintenance of the workmen who make them. They require two a capital of the same kind to keep them in constant repair. No fixed capital can yield any revenue but by means of a circulating capital. The most useful machines and instruments of trade will produce nothing without the circulating capital which affords the materials they are employed upon and the maintenance of the workmen who employ them. Land, however improved, will yield no revenue without a circulating capital, 
which maintains the laborers who cultivate and collect its produce. So really, we're looking at, again, the produce of the land and the labor of mankind, and mankind trumps, right, because circulating capital, stuff that we can do, right? Like how he beautifully expressed before, right? The acquired and useful abilities of all the inhabitants or members of the society, the acquisition of such talents by the maintenance of the acquirer during his education, study, or apprenticeship always cost a real expense, which is a fixed and which is a capital fixed and realized, as it were, in his person. Those talents, as they make a part of his fortune, so do they likewise of that of the society to which he belongs. Right, so we have we have that part right land however so continuing land however improved will yield no revenue without a circulating capital which maintains the laborers who cultivate and collect its produce to maintain and augment the stock which may be reserved for immediate consumption is the sole end and purpose both of the fixed and circulating capitals it is this stock which feeds clothes and lodges the people their riches or poverty depends upon the abundant or sparing supplies which those two capitals can afford to the stock reserved for immediate consumption huh. to maintain and augment the stock which may be reserved for immediate consumption is the sole end and purpose both of fixed and circulating capitals maintain and improve, augment, the stock which may be reserved for immediate consumption is the sole end and purpose both of the fixed and circulating capitals. It is this stock which feeds, clothes, and lodges the people. Their riches or poverty depends upon the abundant or sparing supplies which those two capitals can afford to the stock reserved for immediate consumption. Hmm. Continuing, so great a part of the circulating capital being continually withdrawn from it in order to be placed in the other two branches of the general stock of the society, it must, in its turn, require continual supplies, without which it would soon cease to exist. These supplies are principally drawn from three sources, the produce of the land, of mines, and of fisheries. These afford continuous supplies of provisions and materials, of which part is afterwards wrought up into finished work, and by which are replaced by the provisions, materials, and finished work continually withdrawn from the circulating capital. From mines, too, is drawn what is necessary for maintaining and augmenting that part of it which consists in money. For though in the ordinary course of business, this part is not, like the other three, necessarily withdrawn from from it, in order to be placed in the other two branches of the general stock of the society, it must, however, like all other things, be wasted and worn out at last, and sometimes, too, be either lost or sent abroad, and must, therefore, require continual, though no doubt, much smaller supplies. Land, mines, and fisheries require all, I think that's kind of interesting, or just funny, just coincidental, that back in 1776, there were no such thing as landmines, but uh, just I, it's, it's just my own dry and questionable sense of humor that uh, that land the, is followed by the word mines right here. 
land, mines, and fisheries require all both a fixed and a circulating capital to cultivate them, and their produce replaces with a profit not only those capitals, but all the others in the society. Thus, the farmer annually replaces to the manufacturer the provisions which he had consumed and the materials which he had wrought up the year before, and the manufacturer replaces to the farmer the finished work which he had wasted and worn out in the same time. This is the real exchange that is annually made between those two orders of people, though it seldom happens that the rude produce of the one and the manufactured produce of the other are directly bartered for one another, because it seldom happens that the farmer sells his corn and his cattle, his flax and his wool, to the very same person of whom he chooses to purchase the clothes, furniture, and instruments of trade which he wants. He sells, therefore, his rude produce for money, with which he can purchase, wherever it is to be had, the manufactured produce he has occasion for. Land even replaces, in part at least, the capitals with which fisheries and mines are cultivated. It is the produce of land which draws the fish from the waters, and it is the produce of the surface of the earth which extracts the minerals from its bowels. The produce of land, mines, and fisheries, when their natural fertility is equal, is in proportion to the extent and proper application of the capitals employed about them. The produce of land mines and fisheries when their natural fertility is equal is in proportion to the extent and proper application of the capitals employed about them when the capitals are equal and equally well applied it is in proportion to their natural fertility in all countries where there is tolerable security every man of common understanding will endeavor to employ whatever stock he can command in procuring either present enjoyment or future profit. If it is employed in procuring present enjoyment, it is a stock reserved for immediate consumption. If it is employed in procuring future profit, it must procure this profit either by staying with him or by going from him. In the one case, it is a fixed, or in the other, it is a circulating capital. A man must be perfectly crazy who, where there is tolerable security, does not employ all the stock which he commands, whether it be his own or borrowed of other people, in someone or some of those three ways. Huh. There you have it. A man must be perfectly crazy who, where there is tolerable security, does not employ all the stock which he commands, whether it be his own or borrowed of other people, in someone or other of those three ways. In those unfortunate countries, indeed, where men are continually afraid of the violence of their superiors, they frequently bury and conceal a great part of their stock in order to have it always at hand to carry with them to some place of safety, in case of their being threatened with any of these disasters to which they consider themselves as at all times exposed. This is said to be a common practice in Turkey, in Indostan, and, I believe, in most other governments of Asia. It seems to have been a common practice among our ancestors during the violence of the feudal government. Treasure trove was, in those times, considered 
as no contemptible part of the revenue of the greatest sovereigns in Europe. It consisted in such treasure as was found concealed in the earth, and to which no particular person could prove any right. This was regarded in those times as so important an object that it was always considered as belonging to the sovereign, and neither to the finder nor to the proprietor of the land, unless the right to it had been conveyed to the latter by an express clause in his charter. It was upon the same footing with gold and silver mines, which, without a special clause in the charter, were never supposed to be comprehended in the general grant of the lands, though mines of lead, copper, tin, and coal were as things of smaller consequences. Hmm. At the end of every one of his sections, he definitely goes off on on selling some real deep truth here about the, the money. I mean, in, in those unfortunate countries, but it's not even that, right? It's just in unfortunate circumstances where people are continually afraid of the violence of their superiors. That sucks. That's what, I mean, and there's a different kind of violence, right? People threatening you to be fired from your job and you have no other source of income. No, that's just, you know, so crazy that happens. All right, that was uh, chapter one of uh, the book two of The Nature, Accumulation, and Employment of Stock from the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith. Wow, I can't believe it's already an hour, but I am going to take the time to finish up the other two books right now in the same recording in just a moment here. So you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, Primary Employment, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander, on Wisdom, Spreaker, and Colin social podcasting and social audio and uh, next up is going to be uh, from the little book of economics and this is trade is beneficial for all comparative advantage and let's see what interesting uh, connections can be made here and I'm sure there are going to be, this, this book always has historical figures in it. Um, and I'm finding that this is such a common thing now. It's interesting when you start to study a certain discipline more deeply, specifically. I, I guess I could consider I'm studying um, a specific form of economics called capitalism, free market capitalism specifically. And... Um, And then so many things become so eye-opening or things that you just see everywhere. Like I had just read in the little book of economics yesterday um, a section called The Economy is a Yo-Yo Boom and Bust. And then and then right after that, because I've been looking, keeping my close eye as much as I could on the BRICS organization, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, which met in South Africa on the 22nd of August, um, talking about, you know, uh, changing up the money system in the world, perhaps putting it back on what would be like a gold standard. And uh, I read in an article, two of the same figures in that article, on, which was on kitco.com, that I had uh, read in this book. And they were, um, who was it? It was, uh, gosh, it was Say. Um, they named a couple of, uh, of economists here. And I forget what the guy's name is right now, but they were both mentioned. One was a say, and one was um, 
and I, oh my gosh, what was his name? Oh no, yeah, yeah, it's uh, um, Jean Jean Baptiste Say, who was right here in front of me, and Maynard Keynes were both um, uh, mentioned in the article on kidco.com. And so, any my life abounds with lots of coincidences like that, but it's not such a coincidence, right? Because I'm, I'm studying economics, finance, and all that stuff like that, and these key figures are going to be, their names are going to be bandied about all the time, and I suppose I should uh, expect that. Okay. I'm ready to move on now back to the little book of economics. This is the second section of this wealth attraction research war called primary employment. Part of it is because of the... Uh, the name of the Wealth of Nations uh, book two, which was um, called uh, Of the Nature of Accumulation and Employment of Stock. And um, and then also from the book I'll read following this, How Money Works, at least a section of it, which is titled Primary and Secondary Markets. But right now, here to the little book of economics. Let's see what I can tease out of this here. This section is called Trade is Beneficial for All, Comparative Advantage. In context, the focus is the global economy. Key thinker, once again, David Ricardo, uh, 1772 to 1823. Before his time, in 433 BCE, the Athenians imposed trade sanctions on the Megarians in one of the first recorded trade wars. The Athenians imposed trade sanctions on the Megarians in one of the first recorded trade wars. Oh, that's so interesting because, you know, we have all that stuff going on, sanctions too, right? So so sanctions are considered a, 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 an act of war. So when you start cutting off people from trading with you and stuff like that, it's an act of war. Because you're, you're screwing up. You know, anything that can hurt people, right? It can make people starve or get sick or anything like that. Anything can injure people, that's that's war. 1549, John Hales, an English politician, expresses the widely held view that free trade is bad for the country. Hmm. Well, after the time of David Ricardo, 1965, U.S. economist Mancure Olson shows that governments respond more to the appeal of a concentrated group than one that is more dispersed. Hmm. Hey, folks, you hear that? U.S. economist Manker Olson shows that governments respond more to the appeal of a concentrated group than one that is more dispersed. I mean, that makes sense, right? Laser over flashlight. Okay. Laser more powerful in some cases than flesh like 1967 Swedish economists Bertil Olin and Eli Heckscher developed Ricardo's trade theory to examine how a comparative advantage might change over time hmm. all right trade is beneficial for all the ideas of the renowned 18th century British economist David Ricardo was clearly or were clearly shaped by the world he inhabited and his personal life. The ideas of renowned 18th century British economist David Ricardo were clearly shaped by the world he inhabited and by his personal life. He lived in London, England, at a time when mercantilism was the dominant economic view. This held that international trade should be heavily restricted. As a result, 
governments introduced policies that aimed to increase exports and decrease imports in an attempt to enrich the nation through an inflow of gold. In England, the policy dated back to Elizabethan times. Ricardo thought that the, in the long run, such protectionist policies were more likely to restrict the ability of the country to increase its wealth. Hmm. Ricardo thought that in the long run, such protectionist policies were more likely to restrict the ability of the country to increase its wealth. I do remember that there was a section about protectionism, right? In this here. Yes, protectionism and trade. Protect us from foreign goods. Um, that was another section, protectionism and trade, right? So, like, the flowchart on that section said a country's wealth is its gold. Exports bring in gold. Imports of foreign goods cause gold to be lost. A country should preserve its stock of gold by restricting imports. Protect us from foreign goods. Protectionism and trade. Yeah, and the key thinker there was Thomas Munn, 1571 to 1641. Um, yeah, so there, there's that idea there. Okay, so let's see. Right, so Ricardo thought that in the long run, such protectionist policies were more likely to restrict the ability of the country to increase its wealth. Continuing, early trade protection. Ricardo was particularly concerned by the introduction of a British tax known as the Corn Laws. During the Napole Napoleonic Wars, 1799 to 1815, it was not possible to import wheat from Europe, so the price of wheat in Britain had risen. As a result of this price increase, many landowners increased the proportion of their lands dedicated to growing crops. However, as the war began to falter in 1812, the price of wheat fell back. As a result, the landowners, who also controlled Parliament, passed the Corn Laws at the end of the war in 1815 to restrict the importation of foreign wheat and place a floor a bottom price on grain. The laws protected farmers, but also pushed the price of bread beyond what poorer people could pay at a time when newly returned soldiers and sailors were unable to find work. Huh. Wow, that shit's been going on for a long time, huh? When soldiers and sailors come back from wars and they can't find work, people just, you're killers, baby killers, you're warmongers, just throw them out in the street. Ricardo vigorously opposed the Corn Laws, despite being a wealthy landowner himself. He claimed that the laws would make Britain poorer and developed a theory that has become the mainstay for all those wishing to justify free trade between countries. And then we have a nice, another little flowchart here. Making a product entails costs. One of these costs is time. Even if country A can do everything better than country B, it will profit most by focusing on the things it does best. It is too costly to sacrifice time on something it does less well. This allows country B, which is good, but not the world's best, at making the products country A does not make, a chance to make them without undue competition. Both countries benefit from a comparative advantage which makes the most efficient use of their time and resources. Overall, more goods are produced, 
giving consumers a wider range of products at lower prices. Trade is beneficial for all, which is in opposition to the section called protectionism and trade. Protect us from foreign goods. Two interesting contexts. Okay, continuing. Contrasts. Comparative advantage. Oh, who are we talking about once again? Here we go. Adam Smith had pointed out that the climate differences between Portugal and Britain meant that they would benefit from trade. A worker in Portugal could produce more wine than a worker in Britain, who in turn could produce more wool than a worker in Portugal. Any person or state able to produce more per unit of resources than a competitor is said to have an absolute advantage. Smith said that both Britain and Portugal would profit most by specializing in what they did best and trading the surplus. Makes sense. Ricardo's contribution was to extend Smith's argument to examine whether countries would benefit from specializing and trading when one party had an absolute advantage in both goods. Hmm. Would it be worth trading if one country could produce both more wine and more wool per worker than the other country? Another way of looking at this is to consider whether a person who is better at making both hats and shoes than someone else should split his time between the two jobs or choose one job and then trade with the less skilled worker who makes the other product. Suppose that the superior worker is 20% better at making hats, but 50% better at making shoes. It will be in the interest of both of them if he works exclusively on making shoes, the product he really excels in, while the inferior man works on making hats, the product he is least bad at making. (laughs) He's least bad at making, so that's okay. The logic behind this argument has to do with the relative cost of making the product in terms of the amount of production time taken or lost. Because the superior worker is so good at making shoes, the cost of his making hats is high. He would have to forfeit a lot of valuable shoe production. Although in absolute terms, the inferior worker is worse at making shoes and hats than the superior worker, his relative cost when making hats is lower than for the superior worker. This is because he forfeits less shoe production per hat than the superior worker would. The inferior worker is therefore said to have a comparative advantage in hats, while the superior worker has a comparative advantage in shoes. When countries specialize in goods for which they have a comparative advantage, more goods are produced in total, and trade delivers more and cheaper goods to both nations. Comparative advantage resolves a paradox highlighted by Adam Smith, that countries that are inferior at producing goods, they are said to have an absolute disadvantage in them, can nonetheless export them profitably. Hmm. 20th century advantage. What determines comparative advantage? Swedish economist Eli Hecksher and Bertil Olin, or economists. So what determines comparative advantage? Swedish economists Eli Hecksher and Bertil Olin argued that it comes from countries' relative abundance of capital and labor. Here we go again. Capital-rich countries will have a comparative advantage in capital-intensive products such as machines. Labor-rich countries will have a comparative advantage in labor-intensive products such as farming goods. 
The result is that countries tend to export goods that use their abundant factor of production. Capital abundant nations, such as the U.S., are most likely, therefore, to export manufactured goods. Heckscher and Olin's analysis led to another prediction. Not only would trade tend to produce the differences in prices of goods to different, in different countries, it would also reduce wage differences. The specialization in labor-intensive sectors by labor-abundant economies would tend to push up wage rates, while in effect, while an effect in the other direction would be seen in the capital-abundant country. So despite the overall increase in the short run, ultimately there may be losers as well as winners, and consequently opposition to the opening up of trade. The cries for protectionism are as loud today as they were in Ricardo's time. In 2009, China accused the U.S. of rampant protectionism for imposing heavy taxes on imported Chinese car tires. The decision to increase tariffs came after pressure from U.S. workers who had seen tire imports grow from 14 to 46 million from 2004 to 2008 reducing U.S. tire output, causing factory closures, and creating unemployment. However, the U.S. had previously accused China of unfairly subsidizing its own tire industry, so tensions mounted. China's response was to threaten retaliatory increases in import taxes on U.S. cars and poultry. Tariffs produce effects that ripple through economies. Any protection gained from U.S. tire producers from the tariffs on tires, for example, was counteracted by other negative impacts. Higher tire prices increased the cost of U.S. cars, making them less competitive and reducing the numbers bought by U.S. consumers. The retaliation by China also damaged U.S. export industries. The jobs of some U.S. tire workers may have been saved, but in the wider economy, many more jobs were lost. Huh. Protectionism today. That sounds like this should be the name of a periodical or a show that just specializes in that. We'll make a good protectionism today. I'll do I'll read it in that manner. And now welcome to another edition of Protectionism Today. The U.S. economist Manker Olson has helped to explain why politicians continue to impose policies that are likely to damage the overall economy, even though the costs are widely known. He points out that those against the tariffs, a small number of large domestic producers and their workers, suffer a visible impact from cheap imports. However, the potentially large number of consumers who have to pay high prices because of the tariffs and those workers in affiliated industries, affiliated industries who might lose their jobs through connected impacts, are dispersed around the economy. And that's it for protectionism today. Right, let's see. So, however, yeah, the potentially larger number of consumers who have to pay higher prices because of tariffs and those workers in affiliate industries who might lose their jobs through connected impacts are dispersed around the country. So, I got to look at this again, though. I was goofing off. So, the U.S. economist Manker Olson has helped to explain why politicians continue to impose policies that are likely to damage the overall economy even though the costs are widely known. He points out that those against the tariffs, a small number of large domestic producers and their workers, suffer a visible impact from cheap imports. 
Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, it can be said that they can. That's crazy. All right. Contemporary trade. Today, most economists support the basic Ricardian position on trade and, in particular, believe that it helps today's industrialized countries. U.S. economists, oh, what a name, listen to this, U.S. economists David Dollar and Art Cray have argued, and, and that's so cool his name is spelled A-A-R-T-K-R-A-A-Y, so U.S. economists David Dollar and Art Cray have argued that over the last few decades, trade has helped developing countries to grow and reduce poverty. They claim that the countries that cut their tariffs have grown faster and have seen less poverty. Other economists have questioned whether trade always helps developing countries. The U.S. economist Joseph Stiglitz argues that developing countries often suffer from market failures and institutional weaknesses that might make a too rapid liberalization of trade costly for them. There is also contradictions between theory and practice. When the government of India removed tariffs on imports of cheap palm oil from Indonesia, for instance, it had the positive effect of raising the living standards of hundreds of millions of Indians, in line with Ricardo's theory but it destroyed the livelihoods of one, billion, one million farmers who grew peanuts for oil, which was now passed over for palm oil. In a perfect Ricardian world, the peanut farm farmers would simply transfer into the production of other goods, but in practice they can't because their investment in capital is immobile. Oh, that's what uh, Adam Smith was talking about, fixed capital. Um, and I just read, it's amazing how, see, this stuff is not, this is why reading a book like Wealth of Nations is very important. And I think even reading it cover to cover, because it shows up in modern economic, econ, economic economics right now. And they're still talking about it, even mentioning by name all the time and all these guys from back in the day. Like, it's really a foundation to understanding wealth and money um, and just how, it, how to understand it, all of this. So, um, so yeah, take, checking this out. So, in a perfect Ricardian world, the peanut farmers would simply transfer into the production of other goods, but in practice, they can't because their investment in capital is immobile, right? Fixed capital. A machine that processes peanuts has no other use. Fixed capital rather than circulating capital. See, and I just, I've heard those terms before, but didn't get them, and now I can apply it to this reading right here. I could say that that machine for making peanuts, for us peanuts, is a form of fixed capital. All right. Um, Ricardo's critics argue that in the long run, these kinds of impacts might hamper the industrialization and diversification of poorer countries. Moreover, although rich industrialized countries become or became successful traders, they did not practice free trade when they were first developing. How countries build up comparative advantage over the long run may be more complex than Ricardo's model suggests. Some argue that Europe, and then later the Asian tigers, built, up, built it up through trade protection in which skills were developed before trade opened up. Seems to make some sense. All right. 
just got a uh, message from Carnal. It says, hey, Hakeem, have you and Chase figured out the topic for your Monday show? Right, Mondays. I would be better equipped to contribute if I have some time to prepare. If any of the show titles I have made appeal to you, don't hesitate to ask if I would part with the name. There is a good chance that I, what is this? That I would. I just created another new one a while ago. Buffoons, brigands, and bad boys. Creating show titles is becoming a hobby, and I am considering starting to write daily on Substack behind those ideas. Short pieces on whatever strikes my fancy. I'll get back to John, uh, to Carnal in a little bit on that. All right, so let's take a look at this. Right here, yes, yeah, so that's the end of that. Um, so, Ricardo's model suggests that some argue that Europe and then later the Asian tigers built it up through trade protection in which skills were developed before trade opened up. Okay, this is making some, some tentative sense. I have a little picture here of a barge with a bunch of stuff on it. It says, goods made in Asia are transported to Western countries in vast container ships. Now, that's what that's called, a container ship. It is estimated that 75% of goods in a typical U.S. shopping cart are exported to the U.S. from Asia. I know I lived in China, and I know a bunch of stuff was made over there, especially socks. I went to a whole town. It was called Datang. I used to walk by there and ride my bike there with Floor all the time. And there was a sock museum there, and every other shop was, was were, were selling socks or materials for making socks. It was amazing. They had entire malls that all, you would walk in there, and all they were were just materials for making socks or socks themselves. All right, finally, I'm going to close this out here with the uh, focus on... David Ricardo, what's my time looking at here? An hour and 17 minutes. Uh, focus on David Ricardo, who was the key thinker of this section. David Ricardo, considered one of the world's greatest economic theorists, David Ricardo was born in 1772. His parents moved to England from Holland, and at the age of 14, Ricardo began working for his father, a stockbroker. Age 21, Ricardo eloped with a Quaker, Priscilla Wilkinson. Religious differences between the families resulted in both sides abandoning the couple, so Ricardo started his own stockbroking firm. He made a fortune betting on a French defeat at Waterloo, 1815, by buying English government bonds. Ricardo mixed with notable economists of his day, including Thomas Malthus and John Stuart Mill. He retired from the stock exchange in 1819 and became a member of parliament. He died suddenly of an ear infection in 1823, leaving an estate worth more than $120 million in real terms today. Wow. Well, at least he uh, lived an all right life. That's 1772, that's 28 years, plus 23. I mean, that's all right. That's not a lot. Fifty-one. Huh. All right. Key works. Eighteen ten. The high price of guess what? Bullion. Right, that's enough. Settle down. Right. Eighteen fourteen. Essay on the influence of a low price of corn. And 1817, on the principles of political economy and taxation. All right. That's it for the little 
book of economics for the second part of this year, Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Primary Employment, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander, the hitman, Hakeem in the morning, afternoon, and night. So you never know when I'm going to be here, morning, afternoon, and night. Coming up next, and finally, rounding out and completing this uh, here uh, presentation, my reading, my sharing with my my own learning is uh, the <clears throat> How Money Works, the section titled Primary and Secondary Markets. Primary and Secondary Markets. In order for shares to be bought and sold, but you know, I'm going to take a little bit more, a moment before I start. It's just it's, it's too soon. Oh, God, it's too soon. I'm going to start doing it. I need to take, take some time before I just jump right into them. Let's let my brain, let that stuff settle in my brain a little bit. The first two books are always a lot more connected, interestingly enough. Um, it almost feels like the little book of economics is following directly along with uh, Wealth of Nations from Adam Smith. I suspect that there's something like that kind of going on. Or there's just uh, some strange coincidence. I don't know, right? But I mean, if all these economists who wrote, who contributed to this book, you know, if they studied a little bit about Adam Smith, maybe somebody decided, hey, you know what, let's do this. Let's follow the, the format of Adam Smith. Who are these people, by the way? We have uh, Neil Kishtani. He's a consultant editor. He teaches at the London School of Economics and specializes in economic history and development. George Abbott is a UK economist who worked in, a tw in 2012 on Barack Obama's presidential re-election campaign. John Farndon is the London-based author of many books on contemporary issues and the history of ideas, including overviews of the booming economies of China and India. Frank Kennedy has worked for over 25 years in investment banking in the city of London. James Medway, UK economist James Medway, works at the New Economics Foundation, and, which is an independent British think tank. Um, he worked with the U.S. Treasury as, or U.K. Treasury as well. Christopher Wallace is the head of economics at the U.K. prestigious Colchester Royal Grammar School. And Marcus Weeks studied philosophy and worked as a teacher before embarking on a career as an author. So those are those people who contributed to this book, uh, The Little Book of Economics. And so there's various con contributors, but those are not even all. I mean, there's, holy cow. There's a whole list of other contributors. And just like the other book that I'm about to get into, Primary and Secondary Markets, also published by Dorling Kinsley, has a whole slew of other uh, contributors to the book. Um, but there's not just, there's not like a, a single author, right? We got, man, so many people. I'm not going to get into those right now. It's not as clearly laid out what their duties were as it is in uh, the little book of economics. So... Oh, wait. Oh, wait. There's one of the same guys. James Medway. Did I just read his name in this book? I did, didn't I? Uh, yep, James Medway. So I did find a section in here where they're contributing. So we got... It is actually clearly laid out. Because why would just the publishers... Is there anybody else? No, only James Medway. So we got um, Beverly Harzog, consultant and writer as a consumer credit expert and best-selling author. Her articles appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Marianne Curfee. I like how this book has many more women in it than the other one. Like the other one was like all dudes, and this one is is only two guys. And right, and let me see what's four women. 
We got Marianne uh, Kirby, an award-winning financial writer, interesting enough, well, a financial writer, blogger, columnist, she's worked writer editor for The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph. Um, Emma Lunn is an award-winning personal finance journalist whose work regularly appears in high-profile newspapers such as The Guardian, Independent, and Telegraph. Uh, James Medway, we already read about him. Philip Parker is a historian and former British diplomat and publisher, studied at Johns, Johns Hopkins. And then finally, Alexandra Black studied business communications before writing for financial newspaper group Nikkei Inc. in Japan and working as an editor at investment bank J.P. Morgan. She has written numerous books and articles on subjects as diverse as finance, business, technology, and fashion. So those are the people contributing to this other Dorling Kinsley publication. So this is where the, there's a lot of different people contributing, not just one, but they all seem to be drawing a lot from Adam Smith. The, he's a magician to me. His book is a freaking spell book on alchemy. It's magic. Call it what you will. It's exactly what it is. It's, it's the, the alchemy of, uh, of deep physics, high finance. And I have yet to see anything about ancient religions in it yet, but I'm sure that's probably going to come up. All right. So primary and secondary markets in the book, How Money Works. In order for shares to be bought and sold, there needs to be a market where they can be traded. There are different types of markets, depending on the type of share and the size of the trade. Primary market. A private company may decide to issue shares because it needs money to expand and grow, and it wants access to a wide pool of potential investors. The company sells or floats these new shares in the primary market in an initial public offering, IPO. A company that is preparing to float will use the services of several investment banks to gauge and gather support for the sale of its shares from institutional and private investors before setting a price. The shares are then sold to the public and institutional investors by the company using the services of a specialty broker. Warning. There must be a secondary market for selling on shares bought in the primary market. If no one is interested in buying them or there is no place to trade them, the market for them becomes illiquid. Investment scams often involve investor, investors being sold securities that cannot be sold on, on in a secondary market because they are not listed on the exchange or have no intrinsic value or potential. A share is only tradable when other investors want to buy or sell it. Makes sense. <clears throat> All right, so we got this company here represented by a chicken for some reason. It says the company and the, the company, the public and investors can buy shares of a public company in the primary market. So you got these shares out there, $2 a share. One of them is under the arm of this broker. And we got a public and an investor handing them money. And the investor puts it in the portfolio and the public has it under their arm. Managing the sale. Prospective buyers of the shares will be able to read about the company in its prospectus. Specialty brokers handle the sale. Setting value. The value of shares or the value of share issues in the primary market is fixed before flotation, right? Fixed before they sell it. All right. Floats. 
Okay, now we got the stock exchange over here. Investors can buy and sell shares that have already been floated. Okay, they've already been sold. And these, yeah, are available in the secondary market. So that's what the stock exchange is. Okay, so we got a broker still there, like a little booth in the stock exchange. Got shares at $3 this time. Ah. And an investor paid $3, whereas before they paid $2. Okay, I see. I got you. Share price. Prices are not fixed and change with the fortunes of the company. Supply and demand for the shares and financial economic news. Wow, economic news. I mean, that's alchemy right there, right? Prices are not fixed and change with the fortunes of the company. Supply and demand for the shares and financial and economic news. And then we got secondary market description. When investors talk about shares being bought and sold, they are usually talking about transactions taking place in the secondary market. This is where shares are traded between investors. Trading is facilitated by brokers or dealers who take commission on trades. Dealers also earn profits on the spread or difference between the price at which they buy and sell shares. These dealers are known as market makers and maintain liquidity by offering a buy and sell price at which they will accept trades. The secondary market includes the London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, and other stock exchanges in countries around the world. Wow. Then we have third and fourth markets. Institutional investors, such as pension funds, funds or hedge funds tend to trade stocks and shares in significant volumes. The third and fourth markets cater to these higher volume trades. The third market operates between large investors and broker dealers. The fourth market caters to large investors who buy and sell shares to each other. The cost of trades tends to be lower than in primary and secondary markets because there are no broker's commissions. Although the stock may be listed on the main stock exchanges, the trades that take place are not put through them, and large trades can be made anonymously. Hmm, that's interesting. That's a dark market. I like it. I like it. I like it. All right. And finally, how it works. The primary market is where new shares are created and first issued, whereas the secondary market is where shares that have already been issued are traded between investors. When a company is preparing to float on the primary market, investment banks will set a price at which the new shares will be offered. They may also underwrite the initial public offering IPO and guarantee to take on unsold shares. The issue price is fixed, but shares may be resold at a different price on the stock exchange in the secondary market from the first day of issue. Wow. And the next section after that, which I'm not going to read because I'm done, is uh, called Predicting Market Changes. Uh, it's going to be fun to look at that. And we are done with this edition of Wealth Attraction Research. That's right. I don't know what I'm going to read next. I finished with Babylon's Banksters yesterday.
So I got to maybe start looking at this other book by Joseph P. Farrell, which I did read the in introduction a while back. Um, and it's called Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery. But it's a little more bent towards uh, the fascist international 9-11 and penetrated operations. Should be an interesting one. I like conspiracy theories. I'd like to see where, what they're talking about following all this money stuff here. So it's always fun. I do still have some stuff to finish reading at the end of the Capitalist Manifesto, so we shall see. But as it is, you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Primary Employment, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Call-In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. Oh, you know, before I go, I just like to say thank you and uh, hello for hanging out, you guys who stopped through for a status spell and listened or just passed through. So again, Tiffany Broad, TFOTK, Roman Wyden, Dow with the Dashes, truly, truly, Bernadine Fox, Diane Galante, uh, De, is it Deja? Deja Tevis. Midnight Rain. Uh, Doobie, what's up? Kristen Brown, Soldier of God. Christina Losey. Terry, Dr. Robert James Goodman. B Channel, Taryn Thompson. Uh, Terrison Dawo, Sarita Bat, what's up? Long time. Sonrisa Del Dia. Uh, Dr. Essen Saki. Forgive me if I, um, I've never seen that name or any spelling like that before. Uh, Dr. Essen uh, Oh, wow, Sakai, I'll just put Sakai. That's a cool name. You got to tell me how to pronounce that. Dr. Esan Sakai, or Sakai. Greg Stake, Ezekiel Danek, Andrew Johnson, Zoe, Joshua Blattman, Neil Armstrong, Randall Drake, Sodo Kumar, hello, Megan Nelson, Marcy Ann, T. Drake, Michael J. and Cecilia Grace. Uh, hello, and uh, until next time, stay well.